0: Hey everyone, Jenna here, and our summer break continues this week with an episode from Politics and Polls, a podcast that's produced by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs at Princeton University. The show is hosted by Sam Wong and Julian Zelizer, two professors there. This episode is all about blue state federalism, If you recall our episode with Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro from last year, um, a lot of the the concepts discussed here uh, might ring true from that conversation. Um, This is a more theoretical look at some of the things that Josh Shapiro and several other state attorneys general are practicing on the ground every day. Uh, It is a discussion with Daniel Hemmel, who is an assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School, and they talk about the ways that federalism um, is being used by, in this case, uh, blue states or progressive states to advance policies or, in some cases, block policies uh, when Republicans are in control of the federal government. They hearken back to uh, the famous Lewis Brandeis quote as states as laboratories of democracy. And I think this conversation, as well as our conversation with Josh Shapiro, shows that that spirit is alive and well in Pennsylvania and across the country. So again, thank you for tuning in during our summer break, and we hope you enjoy this episode of Politics and Polls. Mm
1: Welcome back to Politics and Polls. I'm Julian Zelizer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. This is my colleague and co-host Sam Wong.
2: Sam Wong, professor of neuroscience and molecular biology and also founder of the Princeton Election Consortium, election.princeton.edu.
1: The court, the law, our constitutional system have all been questions that in some ways have moved up front and center uh, during the Trump presidency as the Executive branch has made a number of moves in a a number of policy areas that have brought up questions about the relative role and importance of different parts of our governmental system. And a lot of the response to the Trump administration has often not taken place in Washington. It's actually taken place at the local and state level, which has brought up questions about um, how different people in the political spectrum think of federalism Uh, historically federalism had often been uh, favored by the right meaning it had often been a source uh, of frustration for liberals who wanted to centralize and nationalize a lot of policy such as with civil rights but uh, in recent years you've seen a different kind of conversation taking place Uh, with what uh, our guest has called blue federalism and the idea uh, that we might think of this part of our constitutional system very differently and the politics of it in a different light. Today, to help us think about this and other issues related Uh, To the courts, we have with us Daniel Hemmel of the University of Chicago Law School, whose work focuses on a huge range of issues, taxation, nonprofit organizations, administrative law, the courts, federalism, and much more. His academic work appears in Many prestigious journals from the Cornell Law Review, Columbia Law Review, the NYU Law Review, the Supreme Court Law Review, the Yale Law Review, the University of Chicago Law Review, as well as in public uh, outlets such as the New York Times, Politico, The Atlantic, and Fox. Uh, And we are delighted to have him with us today. So uh, welcome to our show.
3: Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I'm a loyal listener, and I usually listen to you on double speed, so it is great to actually <laughs> hear you at single speed and realize that you don't sound like a chipmunk in real person.
2: Wow. You, uh, you're you a man who uses his time efficiently. That's good. That's right.
1: So maybe we could start with this idea. Um, Should we talk faster? Uh, well, we can talk very fast, or we can talk at normal speed, but maybe we can just talk uh, to start about this idea Uh, of of blue federalism and and what that is and and what it means and and why it's significant right now.
3: Blue state federalism is not a phenomenon distinct to the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, Lewis Brandeis was a proponent of federalism in the early 20th century. He talked about states as laboratories of democracy. Uh, in 1977, Justice William Brennan, who was one of the most liberal justices on the Supreme Court, uh, said to progressives, you should start looking at the states rather than at the U.S. Supreme Court as a potential source of rights. But with consolidated conservative Republican control over two and probably soon three branches of government, states become more attractive to progressives as potential ways to achieve items on their agenda and to block the Trump agenda. Um, There are 16 states with Democratic governors in including the biggest state, California. There are eight states with Democratic trifectas, so where Democrats control all branches of government. California is one, your home state of New Jersey is another. Uh, There are 22 states with Democratic attorney generals. Uh, About half of the state Supreme Courts are liberal leaning. Um, So there are definitely opportunities for uh, progressives to achieve real results at the state level.
1: Now the problem always with blue state federalism back in the Brandeis days or pre-New Deal days, or again in the 50s, was always that in the end, many progressives slash liberals felt it was inadequate, that the scattershot approach to policy left too many states able to get out of these kinds of regulations and laws, uh, and it ultimately just undercut the effectiveness of big policy ideas such as economic regulation or civil rights. Are those problems still as pertinent today, or are supporters of blue state federalism seeing this in a different light, beyond this just being the best opportunity out there?
3: Certainly some of it is opportunistic, but I think uh, much of it is actually more forward-looking. States can be the uh, source, the catalysts of changes that ultimately reach the national level. Uh, A great example of this would be same-sex marriage. Uh, where in 2003 it was Massachusetts that found under its state constitution a right to same-sex marriage, and ultimately that was reflected by the Supreme Court in 2015. Um, Sometimes state attorneys general uh, can bring suits that lead to nationwide injunctions uh, so that affect people in blue states and red states. A good example of that would be the injunction against the Trump administration's attempt to unwind the DACA policy, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Um, And finally, blue states can be showcases uh, of places where government works. I think a good example of this, though not entirely a blue example, is Romney Care in Massachusetts uh, as a precursor to the Affordable Care Act. Uh, This is a way of convincing our blue state and red state and purple state brethren that, in fact, government can solve real social problems.
2: But how well do these things work? So, for example, if you talk about... uh... DACA and lower court judges uh, holding up action of those, what's the long-term prognosis for whether that kind of, uh, you know, blue state federalism or rather, you know, whatever, blue court federalism, what's the long-term prognosis for how effective those will be?
3: I think with the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals injunction, it's quite possible that that will hold up uh, at the Supreme Court. If not, it buys time. Uh, And hopefully, uh, at some point, progressives do have control over Uh, additional branches of government. So in that sense, playing the short to medium term game is uh, ultimately we need to win elections. um, And I think- Practitioners of blue state federalism are aware of that. Uh, there are other issues where, um, I, I think another example of that is New Jersey uh, essentially reinstituting the individual mandate at the state level. The hope is ultimately that the Affordable Care Act is restored at the national level, perhaps a more forward-looking solution like single is ultimately implemented. But in the meantime, New Jersey can save its own health insurance market from some of the Trump administration's uh, attacks. I think there are also some serious social problems that are ultimately that can ultimately be dealt with at the state level uh, that don't necessarily require national solutions. Um, so with with health insurance, it wasn't quite clear whether any state could solve this on its own. But moving toward paid parental leave, full day pre-K, reducing automobile deaths. These are real public health problems, and it's not obvious that the national level is the level at which they need to be solved. There are other problems, like global warming, where uh, blue state federalism can maybe uh, generate demonstration projects, but obviously isn't going to be the source of a long-term solution.
2: Yeah, so it seems to me that these solutions, the way you're describing them, I mean, in the case of uh, DACA, I suppose, could lead to a national action. But in other cases, as you also say, stay local. So let's uh, maybe we can walk through something that you've written about or, or, or talked about a fair bit. Uh, here's a Supreme Court decision that came out in the last term, the Janus decision, which uh, appears to have weakened public service unions uh, quite a lot. It's, uh, there's one estimate that, uh, that uh, a ruling in, in this case will cause public service unions to lose 726,000 members decline of more than 8%. That's an estimate by uh, Frank Manzo and Robert Bruno, scholars from Illinois. And so imagining large losses to public sector unions, is there a way for blue state federalism to somehow undo that or protect unions from the assault uh, that they've been under?
3: I think that's a great illustration uh, of an instance in which if blue states want to save their public sector unions, uh, they can, notwithstanding the decision in Janus v. AFSCME, uh, the case handed down last month. Uh, so the ruling in Janus versus AFSCME was that it was a violation of public employees' First Amendment rights to require them to make payments to a union that they didn't want to join. But uh, that doesn't affect the ability of a state government To subsidize a public sector union. Essentially, that was what was happening regardless. Uh, So imagine you're a teacher, you're making $50,000. Your employer actually told you, uh, if you were in a state with a fair share fee law, that you had to pay $1,000 to your union. So $49,000 ends up with you, and $1,000 ends up with your union. There's nothing preventing states from saying, okay, we can't force our school teachers and other public employees to make payments themselves to public sector unions. So we'll pay $49,000 to the school teacher and have $1,000 go from the state treasury to the union. In effect, that was what was happening already because often these fees were just deducted from people's paychecks. I think that would almost certainly hold up, even with the current composition of the Supreme Court, uh, because there's a well-established government speech doctrine that the government can take one side of a dispute, Uh, it can decide to support unions, even if it can't, post-Janus, force public employees to themselves support unions.
2: That seems like it might uh, come off as a bit fishy, the use of public money, tax money, really, to finance these unions. I have this little feeling that that could easily be turned as a strong political negative because unions have uh, diminishing public support. I mean, it's uh, it's. I was thinking about this. The issue with unions is that it used to be that workers were such a major source of productivity and labor and the things that happen in everyday life that by walking out they could uh, they could stop society. And unions, in some sense, are are weaker because the power of their ability to strike. Right, their ability to strike has less impact on everyday life. And it just seems that unions have started to exit the public consciousness where they, they only really seem to ever come up during court cases. And I'm just thinking about what the optics of any state starting to finance public unions directly in the way you're describing. It strikes me as a politically um, uh, charged way of solving the problem.
3: I guess Two responses, one, uh, while unions in the private sector have grown a lot weaker over the last several decades, and part of that is attributable to uh, legal factors, part of that is just attributable to a sectoral shift from manufacturing where unions were uh, denser to the service sector where there's less unionization, unions have remained quite strong in the public sector really uh, up through today. Um. So I'm not sure if in the public sector union context, and that's the only context in which the Janus versus Ask me decision really matters, uh, the diagnosis of of union weakness is quite correct. Second, I think it's important to emphasize that blue states were blue states who were the most of the states that already had these fair share fee laws, these laws that required public sector employees to pay something to the union that represented them in collective bargaining that effectively prohibited uh, free riding. They were effectively subsidizing the union already. All that the Janus Fix that I and others uh, have proposed would do is redescribe the existing flow of funds. Right? Instead of Fifty thousand dollars being uh, one thousand dollars being deducted from the school teacher's paycheck by the payor by the school district and sent to the employee uh, sent to the union. We would just redescribe that as the school district. Uh, directly paying the union. Now, there has been some resistance from unions to this idea. Lee Saunders, the president of AFSCME, um, said that uh, he's skeptical of these workarounds precisely because he doesn't want to be subsidized by his adversary across the the bargaining table, uh, the public sector employer. But that was really what was happening already.
1: There's some areas where I think for many listeners, it's harder to see how this can be effective. So the one that comes up instantly for me is gun control. Uh, and here's an area of regulation where blue state federalism, it would seem in the long run won't work that well because while you can be more punitive or tougher or restrictive in certain states, if guns are flowing you know, uh, within driving range, uh, that ultimately it will really undercut the ability of government to stop uh, the flow of arms. It's, is that, I mean, is that a fair assessment or is even in an area like that, are there ways to imagine this working uh, in, in, in a
3: more uh, powerful way uh, than it would seem on paper? I think gun control is a good case of a, a national problem, uh, one where Blue state solutions can be demonstrative, but ultimately won't be uh, a solve-all. Look, states can take efforts to uh, make sure that uh, certain types of guns are not being sold within state boundaries. And I think that we've seen, after the Supreme Court's decisions in the DC case, Heller versus DC, and the Chicago case, McDonald versus City of Chicago, striking down uh, quite onerous state and local restrictions on uh, handguns that since then we 've actually seen no Supreme Court activity on on gun rights uh, we 've seen uh, municipalities and states allowed to regulate guns in all sorts of ways without the Supreme Court striking that down. so uh, the District of Columbia has a ban on semi automatic rifles now it 's true that someone can cross the state line into Virginia and in states that are larger, uh, that will be harder. Uh, so I think California can probably accomplish more uh, on gun control uh, than, say, New Jersey can. But there's still costs to movement. So if New Jersey and other Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic states uh, take real action on gun control, then that does make it harder uh, for, for people to get guns in their hands.
1: And another area that Sam and I have discussed over Uh, the last year plus, has been uh, voting rights. And we've had many guests talk about, uh, including Ari Berman, about uh, this uh, erosion of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 because of the court decision, because of states putting into effect very restrictive uh, provisions uh, that make it more difficult to vote. Uh, how, How do you see... Uh, blue state federalism working in in this realm of policy, which seems quite critical uh, in the coming years?
3: Well, we would hope that democratic governors, progressive governors, and progressive state legislatures are not themselves implementing uh, draconian voter registration and identification laws. Even in states where progressives don't control the legislative and executive branches, there's hope in state supreme courts. There's a right to vote in 49 state constitutions. uh, And the 50th is really an arguable exception, Arizona. Some people see a right to vote there. Some people don't. But the right to vote uh, is more robustly protected in state constitutions than it is in the federal constitution. And that means that uh, plaintiffs can bring cases in state court ultimately getting up to the state supreme courts uh, that are trying to protect. Uh, voters' access to the polls. If a decision is based on state constitutional grounds rather than on federal constitutional grounds, it's not appealable to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Um, and. Uh, I think state Supreme Courts, for the most part, are less ideological uh, than their federal counterpart. So there's, there's hope for, for winning some big cases at the state level. In uh-huh. the gerrymandering context, that's exactly what happened in Pennsylvania, where right. the Pennsylvania state Supreme Court struck down on state constitutional grounds a district map, and that decision wasn't appealable to the Supreme
2: Court. Yeah, that one was a relative bright spot. So I've been spending a, a fair amount of time working on the gerrymandering issue, as longtime listeners of politics and polls know. And here, the Princeton, Princeton Gerrymandering Project. We helped a little bit with the Pennsylvania case uh, in, uh, in in in, as a, in a third party manner. And I have someone in my in my group who's been looking into state constitutions, which turn out to be a, a more fascinating read than any of us ever expected. Uh, state constitutions are a little bit similar to each other. They seem to have all uh, had some you know common sources, but they have provisions that were found in Supreme Court decisions. So even though the Supreme Court was notably, notably lame in not acting on partisan gerrymandering, you can find ideas in uh, Roberts' uh, majority decision in the, in, the, in the big case where they didn't do anything based on the 14th Amendment. Elena Kagan, your old mentor on the Supreme Court, uh, Professor Hemel, uh, wrote about the First Amendment issues. And these issues are found in state supreme, uh, state constitutions. And so I was, uh, I was looking at this. I'm, I'm going I'm to self-promote for just a moment. Right now, I have in the American Prospect an article about how in every single state that's badly gerrymandered, there is something that can be done about this in the way that you're describing. Uh, state constitutions say that there should be freedom of expression. They say that there should be free and fair elections. They say that the laws should be equally applied throughout the state. And so there's just provision after provision. And I got to say, uh, you know, my, my take on this is that there's been a lot of focus by liberals and also you know, maybe by both sides on the national constitution because the national constitution is the most glamorous part of law. It's the crown jewel of law. It's the string theory of law. But meanwhile, all these state constitutions have all kinds of things in them that are just waiting to be dug out. And in the, in the, in the gerrymandering domain, it feels like there could be quite a lot of, uh, a lot of progress made.
3: I very much agree, and I enjoyed your uh, your piece this past week uh, on on this precise subject. Now, there, there is the challenge for the few states that are Democratic-controlled, that they, they don't want to unilaterally disarm uh, on partisan gerrymandering uh, when it comes to federal congressional districts. They can create fairer maps uh, for state legislative districts, but there's a concern that if Uh, say, Illinois were less gerrymandered or Maryland were less gerrymandered for purposes of uh, congressional districts, then we might actually see a less representative U.S. House. Right now, we have uh, the Republicans won fewer than half of votes in the 2016 congressional elections uh, and control 55 percent of House seats. If you saw sort of unilateral disarmament by blue states, then that disparity would uh, grow even more dramatic.
2: The place where you really want to do this is purple states. I mean, North Carolina is sort of a purple state, Pennsylvania, Michigan. You really want to do this in places where things can go either way. Like The the disarmament thing is just uh, political suicide.
3: I think uh, a a fun idea, uh, a creative idea, I don't know how practical uh, an idea this is, uh, is one that was floated by uh, Jamie Raskin, who's now a member of Congress from Maryland but used to be a state lawmaker. Um, and he proposed an interstate compact between Maryland, which then had a Democratic-leaning gerrymander, and Virginia with a Republican-leaning gerrymander. And his point was, look, we'd all be better off uh, if we had more competitive, elect- more competitive congressional elections in our states. Uh, so what we need is blue states and red states to link up. Uh, and create a contract where they agree, I won't gerrymander if you won't.
2: Let me pivot a little bit. So far we've talked about cases where blue state federalism leads to progress or leads to change within a state. But I want to get back to something we touched upon a minute ago, uh, a few minutes ago, which is the possibility of these actions crossing state lines, because that seems to be a place where pa- where power can really be exerted by individual states. And let me focus a little bit on something that seems to be a persistent disease in our modern society Uh, internet and social media. So if we think about things like net neutrality, like internet privacy, like the uses of social media to purvey false information or hate speech, these are all domains that seem to be crying out for regulation or positive action by the federal government. But for whatever reason, there's just a failure of action. So I've lately had a bee in my bonnet about Mark Zuckerberg, who in this week's news declined to go after Holocaust deniers on Facebook, somehow having this naive tech bro point of view that it's good for information to flow freely, including false, scarless information. And so it strikes me that that this is a domain where blue state federalism can make a big difference. I mean, here we have California, which is the most populous state of the union, one-tenth of the uh, nation's people, uh, a, a the major hub of tech in the United States. Imagine if a state like California, or if we, to a lesser extent New York or New Jersey or what have you. Imagine if these states started regulating social media, or truth in internet uh, information, or net neutrality. It strikes me that that's a domain where it's just too much work for these tech companies to go doing their ridiculous little things at a single state level. If they got regulated enough by blue states, they might throw up their hands and say, "Okay, okay." We cry, uncle, we're going to go ahead and regulate these things nationally, whether it be Internet service providers or whether it be social media or what have you, because all of those are utilities. And I'm going to use the word utilities, utilities that cross state lines. And so I'm interested in what, you know, the extent to which that's possible and it does not run across uh, the extent to which it does not run afoul of federal law.
3: So three observations. First, on data privacy, I think there probably is a role for state action. Illinois, California, uh, several other states have taken steps on data privacy, not quite as dramatic as the EU, uh, but they're, they're innovating. We can talk about whether we think they're innovating in the right direction uh, or not, but I think data privacy is an area where uh, state legislatures probably have the constitutional run room uh, to to lead. Um, second, on uh, net neutrality, the, communication, the Federal Communications Act of 1934 uh, does severely limit the ability of states to regulate communications. Oh, so I'm bad. not sure whether a state, uh, or I, I'm doubtful that a state <laughs> would be able uh, to accomplish net neutrality on its own. Third, when it comes to sort of truth in in media, there we get into uh, real First Amendment questions. A state constitution can be more protective of rights than the federal constitution, and the Supreme Court will stay its hand. Uh, But a state can't take away a right granted by the federal constitution. So I think that if, say, a state were to try to force Facebook uh, to kick Holocaust deniers off the site, uh, the Holocaust deniers would have a very strong free speech claim under the federal First Amendment. I see. I so it would be like
2: Stormfront storm versus State of California, and it would go up to the Supreme Court, and then there we would see the spectacle of the Supreme Court ruling in favor of Stormfront, something like that.
3: I would I would bet on Stormfront there, uh, and <laughs> we've seen we've seen examples, <laughs> yeah. right? The uh, Skokie, the Supreme Court said that Nazis had the right to march in Skokie, which was a, a a suburb of Chicago that at the time had a large population of Holocaust survivors. Okay, um, but
2: they—but hold on, but they don't have the right not to be fact-checked. And so one could easily imagine mandating, here's an example, equal time provisions that used to be big with the FCC. Those have fallen by the wayside. And so if a state were to mandate equal time provisions or mandate uh, you know, fact-checking mechanisms at social media companies, they, they couldn't stop that.
3: Well, first, I love the fact that you are thinking of states, uh, blue states as potential solutions to what I think we both agree is uh, a social problem. Second, on this one, uh, I think that states- power is constrained. Uh, mm. You can't make, just as you can't make uh, Mark Janice make a payment to uh, a union that he doesn't support, if a Supreme Court will say that, um, then I can't say, uh, then I can't imagine it will require me, a media company, uh, to publish views that I don't agree. I don't think that, consistent with our First Amendment, uh, we can make Fox News have a certain number of liberal commentators uh, or give certain airtime to liberal views.
2: But doesn't that get back to whether we think of them as a source of speech or as a utility? And so shouldn't it, we at least consider the possibility that these social media companies are utilities that are that the public has come to rely on?
3: It's an interesting claim. Uh, as a predictive matter, do I think that uh, five Republican appointed justices on the Supreme Court uh, would say that Fox News has to have a certain number of Democrats uh, or that uh, Facebook uh, has to have a certain number of Holocaust scholars to uh, counterbalance Holocaust deniers. Uh, given current U.S. First Amendment jurisprudence uh, and the current composition of the court, I can't really imagine that, uh, that law being viable.
1: you are almost out of time, but since we have you, if we could just shift at the end to get your thoughts uh, on the other big question that is uh, on everyone's mind, especially after we get past the Helsinki summit, if we do, Uh, and that's the uh, Supreme Court nomination that the president announced several days ago uh, with Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, Curious if we get your thoughts on on the nominee, on the process, on the potential implications for the court.
3: I think the nominee uh, is exactly who we would have thought any Republican president would have nominated. Uh, This was one of the few instances in which Donald Trump behaved kind of like how we would have thought George W. Bush uh, would have behaved. On the next few steps, uh, I think Kavanaugh will very likely be confirmed. I think it will be very hard uh, to persuade Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins or another moderate Republican uh, to vote against his confirmation. Uh, My guess would be that a few Democrats who are vulnerable, Heidi Heitkamp from uh, North Dakota, Joe Donnelly from Indiana, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, especially once they realize that Kavanaugh will be confirmed, uh, will see this as a good opportunity to cast a vote with the Republicans to show home state voters uh, that they are uh, that they're moderate uh, and that they're willing to cross party lines. On the effect on the composition of the court, look my My ideological views uh I think have been uh, are pretty pretty clear from our conversation so far. Brett Kavanaugh is not the person who I would have wanted to see on the court if I could just choose anyone um, but if I could choose any republican appointed circuit court judge under the age of sixty, he'd actually be pretty high on my list. Uh, he doesn't vote straight party line. Um, and he's replacing a very conservative uh, justice. Anthony Kennedy uh, was was not for the last term on the Supreme Court the swing vote. There were no 5-4 decisions in the last term where he sided with uh, the liberals. If anything, it would be this past term, Gorsuch or or Roberts, who is more likely to side with the liberals. Um, So I don't think we'll see a radical change in the ideological composition of the Supreme Court. I think we see one conservative justice being replaced by another mainstream conservative justice. The biggest impact is that... Uh, Brett Kavanaugh is 53, uh, and he's replacing someone who was approximately three decades his senior, Um, and that means that it's going to be a long time before the Democrats have an opportunity to swing the balance of the court. So the oldest conservative justice now is Clarence Thomas, who's 70. So even if we imagine Bernie Sanders or Kamala Harris or Cory Booker winning in 2020 uh, and potentially replacing Ginsburg, potentially Breyer, it's going to be a long time unless uh, something, some surprising event occurs uh, before the Democrats are going to be able to appoint a fifth Liberal leaning justice
2: to the court. But let's get into some of the details. This is a little bit of Supreme Court inside baseball. But some Supreme Court justices are more interesting or more intellectual than others. For instance, in this year's Supreme Court term, Elena Kagan really emerged, I think, over and over again as a pretty significant intellectual force. If you look at her concurrence in the Gill v. Whitford gerrymandering case, she laid out a strong doctrine for gerrymandering, which might, you know, is probably not going to go anywhere at the federal level but it's gonna be a template at the state level. She wrote other decisions, one, you know, an administrative law issue, Lucia, Lucia versus security, uh, SEC, uh, and on and on. So she, and she, she's written, uh, she wrote the Sessions versus DeMaya case. So it strikes me that individual justices can make a difference, Kagan emerging as a major intellectual force on the liberal wing of the court. Kennedy has gained so much attention uh, because of being a swing vote but he is not often accused of being an intellectual force. And so I'm curious as to what we know about Kavanaugh whether he's going to be interesting intellectually, whether he's going to be a forceful voice, uh, and whether that's, you know, at some level, whether that's good or bad for, uh, for let's say, conservative doctrine on the court.
3: He's whip smart. Uh, I think he will certainly be a powerful intellectual force uh, on the court. Uh, he is, like my former boss, Justice Kagan, a fantastic writer. Um, so as someone who teaches Supreme Court cases in a law school, uh, I appreciate uh, a Justice Kavanaugh on the court uh, because it makes my job more fun. Uh, it's more fun uh, to, to uh Teach the Scalias and the, the Kagans and the Kavanaughs, the really excellent writers uh, on the court, and the Holmeses and Cardozos and Brandeis's from an earlier era, uh, than those whose uh, prose is, is middling. Um, I think Justice Kavanaugh will, uh, assuming he becomes uh, a Justice Kavanaugh, will carve out a mode of uh, interpretation that. Uh, isn't just uh, a replica of Scalia. I think his views on the administrative state are different from Scalia's. I think he's probably less of a committed originalist uh, than Scalia or Thomas. He hasn't had all that many opportunities uh, to really lay out his own vision of the Constitution and of statutory interpretation um, as a D.C. circuit judge, but he's been a remarkably productive scholar for someone who doesn't have a full-time position at a law school, and his law review articles, I think, give us at least a snapshot of what those opinions might look like. Hmm. As for the ultimate effect on conservative doctrine, I think it helps conservatives to have uh, an intelligent... uh, An eloquent voice for their cause. But I also think that we won't see, just as we haven't seen Chief Justice Roberts be a reliable vote for uh, conservative Republicans in every case, I don't think we'll see Brett Kavanaugh to be a reliable vote for conservative Republicans in every case.
2: It's all shaping up to be a little bit of a replay of the first Gilded Age, where we've got this Supreme Court that reflects the times in a certain sense, that's going to be around at least for a decade. I remember that uh, it's really stuck with me that the Supreme Court in the Gilded Age stuck around for decades and really held back the onset of the progressive age. And so I, I'm just feeling this replay uh, as I think about 53-year-old Brett Kavanaugh sticking around for a while.
1: Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, thanks to our guest, Daniel Hemmel of the University of Chicago, for walking us through uh, many issues, including blue state federalism and the Uh, current Supreme Court nomination uh, battle that lies ahead. Uh, Thanks so much for joining our show. Thanks for having me. And once again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. Thanks for joining us and we'll be back soon on Politics and Polls.
2: Goodbye, everybody.
0: You've been listening to Politics and Polls, a podcast series produced by WooCast. This podcast is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs.